Good morning, guys. How are we doing this morning? Good to see you guys. So uh, we've had a, we have a few people that are kind of like visiting with us this morning, checking stuff out, uh, p- potential leaders in our high school ministry. So I'm uh, just going to encourage you to be really, really nice to them this morning. And then also I'm going to ask um, Ben if you can move over to the freshman guys this morning because they're um, without a leader this morning. So if you can go to the freshman guys table, that'd be awesome. Um, big, big help for us. And today, guys, we are continuing our series in the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in uh, Psalms 23. Now, when I say Psalms 23, how many of you guys know what that passage is? Off the top, you're like, yeah, I know what it is, right? So, um, so you might be asking the question, well, why are we doing a psalm that uh, most of us probably had memorized since we were in third grade, if you were raised in church? In fact, when I told my wife that I was going to do Psalm 23, her first reaction was, yeah, but they already know that psalm. So why are you teaching that psalm? And I was like, well, you know, because it's in the Bible, and so we're going to still teach the Bible. And so even though um, you might know the psalm uh, by heart, I had this belief that uh, sometimes something can become so familiar to us that it becomes unfamiliar to us. And so we're going to look at Psalm 23, even though it might be one that you already know about or know the main ideas of. Um, we're going to look at this psalm in depth this morning. And uh, I think this is true of relationships. When you think you know someone so well, um, you take for granted your relationship, and it, it really might mean that you don't know them that well at all. And the same goes for some Bible passages as well. So I, I put John 3.16 up there as well. Um, if, you, if I said I'm preaching a passage today on, or preaching a sermon on John 3.16, you guys would be like, oh, Really? Really, John 3.16? And Psalm 23 might fit that same category for you. Uh, But I really think that we're going to see some fresh insights into a familiar passage for us today. So turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 23, and we'll dive in. And uh, we'll have some discussion throughout the morning today. So here's what it says in Psalm 23. It says, uh, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And what's funny is when I kept reading this passage this week, um, I found myself, when I got to verse 4, that I wanted to break out into Coolio's rap of this song. You know, like, you know the song, like, Gangster's Paradise, right? So he, whenever I would, like, read this passage, I'd get to where I'm, like, want to start, like, rapping it, because that's what he does in the song. And so you can see how popular this has become, like, even in our culture. And so look at verse 4. It says, even though I walk, I'm not going to rap it for you, don't worry. I feel this urge. Okay. <laughs> I'll just let Jay down here do it. We'll, we'll do that. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this... Interestingly enough, this is written from the perspective of a sheep. Did you guys know sheep can write? So he says, the Lord is my... So who's writing this? This is David writing this. So it says, the Lord is my shepherd. So David is putting himself in the place of a sheep. Now, anyone here have an experience with sheep? Raise your hand. It's okay. Don't be shy. You can be proud about this. All right, so a few of you have experience with sheep. So um, any, like... Future farmers of America in the room, come on, be proud. You, you put your hand up there. Of course, they're, not, they're out tending the sheep right now. Of course, they're not going to be in church on Sunday morning. So, <laughs> but so sheep, 
if you know anything about sheep, sheep are really, really dumb animals. Really dumb animals. They're also really dirty, and they're really defenseless. So when you think about sheep, sheep have no way to clean themselves. I've got a cat at my house. Anybody have a cat? So cats are always doing this number, like, right? They're always cleaning themselves, and cats are clean as clean can be. But sheep, you never see a sheep doing that, like with their hoof. You never see them doing that, do you? Like sheep, they can't clean themselves. They don't, they're, they're dumb, they're dirty, they're defenseless. And so here's why this is interesting, because um, they're defenseless, completely defenseless creatures. In fact, if, you're, if your parents' um, house gets broken into, and they're like, all right, that's it, we've got to get ourselves a sheep. Who's going to watch the house? Who's going to scare away the bad guys? We're going to get ourselves a little meh sheep, right? Like your parents, they'd be like, we're getting a German shepherd, man. We're going to get a big old dog. They'll scare off the bad guys. And so sheep have no ability to defend themselves or defend anyone else. That's why you have to get dogs to defend the sheep or a shepherd to defend the sheep. But here's why I say all this, because when you know that David wrote this psalm, David used to spend time with sheep. He was a shepherd. It puts it in perspective because you realize David's putting himself in the place of these sheep that are dirty, defenseless, and dumb. And you see his humility. You see his humility as he stands before God and realizes, God is my shepherd. And I'm putting myself in the place of these animals that I used to look after and tend to. So um, when I was in college, I went on a mission trip to the country of Wales. How many of you guys knew there was a country called Wales and it wasn't just an animal? All right, good. So teaching guys something in school, that's good to hear. So mission trip to Wales. And it was funny because the slogan for that trip became Save the Whales. And, uh, and so we, for true story, and so my friend, uh, you guys know my friend Simon, the guy from England? So he was on this trip with us. And Simon and I were interns at a church together. And um, the mission trip was, uh, we had this two-week trip. It was exhausting. And at the end of the trip, we had this um, sort of last night with this uh, church gathering. And it was out at this sheep farm in this ranch. We call it a ranch. They call it a sheep farm. And, uh, and there's a, like a bonfire. It's kind of cold outside. It's like really cool. Had lots of good food. And, and it's a really good time. And so it's getting to be dark, almost dark. And so Simon and I have been bored this entire trip, we're just like, you know, we, we're kind of like just pent up. We need to get some energy out. And so we talked this a high school student into uh, joining us on this little venture. And we decided, we said, hey, you see those sheep down over there on the hillside? Let's go run and just chase them. Let's just chase them and see what happens. And so we start chasing this herd of sheep. And the goal was like to chase like a sheep and then try to like hurdle it as many times as you can back and forth from side to side. That was, the, that was the game. And so Simon, you can see Simon like running through the, the field like this, just doing this number like, like over the sheep over and over again. These things were tiny. And so we see these sheep, like they have no, there's like no cohesion. They don't stay in a herd. They just like scatter about. And what happened was the, the guy who was like, uh, like the lead farmer, he like comes out. And he is so angry. He's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, what, is that, is that bad? Should we, should we not be doing this? And so we got in big trouble for this. And uh, on a mission trip, as leaders, it was bad. And, uh, and so, but what I, I say that because, think about this. If we had, if there had been like a herd of lions 
in this field? Would we be like, let's go chase the lions? Or even a, a pack of dogs or anything else besides sheep? Would we say even like, let's go chase the horses? Let's go chase the bulls? Right? We wouldn't have said that. Because sheep have no defense mechanism. And this is a position that David puts himself in um, as like one of the sheep being cared for by God himself. And so with that, I want you guys to discuss questions one through three. Go ahead and discuss your first three questions at your tables for a few moments. All right, we're going to look at each one of these verses and kind of dissect each one as we go. So only six verses in this whole chapter, but we're going to look at each one and, and sort of pick it apart, and, uh, and hopefully you'll see it in a new light this morning. So looking at verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Your Bible might say, I shall not be in want, which is more like an English, like an old English translation, I guess. But uh, when, you, when you first read that passage, it might look like it's saying that when God is my shepherd, well, you know, God's going to give me whatever I want. When God's my shepherd, then I'm going to get whatever I want, right? That's what at least a surface reading of that might look like. When you look deeper kind of beneath the surface, he's really talking more about needs. Not just how we think of wants versus needs. He's really talking more about needs. So whenever you are being shepherded by God, shepherded by Jesus, when he is your shepherd, when God is your shepherd, you will never lack what you really need. I want you to write this quote down. When God is your shepherd, you will never lack what you really need. And the key word is really need, right? Because most of the time, we like to turn wants into needs. We like to think of things that we, we think we, we have to have. We see those things as necessities. And I think when I read this passage, I thought about um, when I was in college and I was... Uh, I was in a lot of weddings, like friends of mine were getting married, and I was like the groomsman. And whenever you're like in your early 20s and you're starting to move towards your mid-20s, you're starting to think about, well, well you know, hey, when, when's my time going to come? When am I going to meet that girl? When am I going to meet that person that I can eventually marry? And, um, and honestly, there was a point at which, like when I was 18 or 19, I knew I wasn't ready. I mean, I was an 18 or 19-year-old idiot, who liked to chase sheep in the Welsh countryside, right? So I knew I wasn't ready for someone um, at that point. But you start getting to like 22, 23, 24, you start to think, well, yeah, I think that maybe um, that now's the time. And as I began to approach this with, through, with, uh, through prayer with God, I would, my prayers would kind of sound like, God, I feel like I'm ready, so you know, where is she? I feel like I'm ready, so where is she, God? But what happened was God didn't speak to me like in an actual voice, but what he, what he kind of impressed upon my heart was that, well, if, if you're really ready, then wouldn't she be there? If you're really ready, then wouldn't I, wouldn't I have already given her? You think I'm just holding out on you? Maybe there's some things that you have to go through you're unaware of. Maybe some, there's some, some growth you still need to have done in your life before um, I just let her show up at your front doorstep. And so what if, you have to ask yourself the question, what if God gave you everything that you wanted when you wanted it? Because right now you might be thinking, well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, yeah, why can't God give me this? Why can't God give me that? 
And when I, look at, when I look back on my life and I think, ask that question, what if God gave me everything I wanted when I wanted it? That is a scary thought. That is a really scary thought. Like, what if, what if he had given me that girl in 10th grade that I was really pursuing? What if he had given me that girl my senior year that I was really pursuing? What if that had been the woman that God had, that I had ended up with? I think about that and go, man, my life would look a lot differently now had it worked out that way. What if God had given me everything I wanted throughout my life? I started thinking about when I was um, in high school, I went to kind of a smaller private school and, um, and I played soccer. And that was my sport was soccer. I love soccer. And played since I was a kid and played in, in high school. And we had a decent team for our little area. And I really began thinking, you know, people started saying like, yeah, yeah, you could probably play in college and started thinking about, like, well, I want to play in college. I, want to, I don't want to, you know, stop playing when I'm a senior. I want to go on and play in college somewhere. And I probably could have played, like, Division three somewhere. You know, no, no, no money involved, just Division three. probably could have made a team somewhere. And I had my sights set on this little teeny school in northwestern uh, Pennsylvania. That's a school I thought could take me. And so I put everything into that basket. I was like, I'm going to go to the school. It was perfect situation for what I thought I needed. And God said, no. I got a little letter in the mail. Um, you know when you're accepted by a school because it sends you like a big package, right? Like, hey, welcome to TCU. Welcome to this school, that school. But when you get the little envelope, you already know the answer, right? You're like, no, it's no. It's like, just spare me the misery. Just call me or something, right? And I get the letter saying, you know, you're being put on the waiting list, which is like a nice way of saying no. And... uh and so I couldn't go to that school. It wasn't in my timing. And so I was stuck going to a school I didn't want to go to. I couldn't play college soccer. And this was my dream. This was my dream. And I look back on that and say, you know, what if God had said yes? What if God had said yes to me doing what I thought I wanted to do, what I thought I wanted? And here's the reality. If I'd gone to that school, I never would have come to Texas. I never would have gotten into ministry full time. I never would have met my wife. Never would have had my kids, the ones I have now anyway. And I think about that and go, you know, what if God gave me everything I wanted when I wanted it? This is not what it means when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's saying, you will never lack what you really need when Jesus is your shepherd. You'll never lack what you really need. And here's the reality. When he's your shepherd, he's enough. So this is not about God's going to give you things I want you to see the connection here. When it says God is your shepherd, it's saying, I think it's saying you're not going to be in want because you have him. You've got him as your shepherd. Like he's going to be what you need. He's going to satisfy your desires. He's going to give you everything that you need through him first. And anything outside of that is a blessing, is an added blessing. You know, I think most of us, when we hear the word, the phrase of like Jesus being a shepherd, I know most of us, at least my mind goes to the, the old school Sunday school pictures that you saw on the wall as kids, in your classrooms possibly, might look something like this, like super happy, cheesy Jesus, um, Pantene Pro-V Jesus with the groomed beard, and just smiling pretty with his little sheep in his hand, and I want to say... I don't think Jesus ever had a pet lamb. 
I don't think he did. I don't think Jesus walked around with a pet lamb just like, wouldn't that be kind of creepy? <laughs> I mean, hey, guys, come follow me, <laughs> right? Like, what in the world is this? And so Jesus, um, I think we think of Jesus being a shepherd. We think of it like this sort of cheesy Sunday school, cute little picture. But when we think of it like that, it's like we, we miss out on the power of the picture that God's trying to portray to us when he calls himself a shepherd and when he refers to us as sheep. Because sheep, being a shepherd was not some cute little job. It was this powerful image. I mean, there were times when shepherds would have to possibly kill a bear, kill a wolf. There were times when they may have to break the leg of a little lamb so the lamb would stay close by them. Being a shepherd was a big deal. It was a dangerous profession, a dangerous job. And God refers to himself as the shepherd and refers to us as the sheep. Look at verse 2. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I think when you look at that passage, verse 2, uh, a quote that I read this past week, I'm going to tie this into um, how this ties into rest and, and faith. But when you think of green pastures, we think of a place of provision. These are still waters. These are not, this is not like rapids. Like God, God's not bringing his people to like, okay, here's the Here's your, here's your water, and it's going to like wash them away in a flash flood. This is still waters. This is provision from, from God to his people. In the Bible, there's this connection between the concept of rest and faith. And I read this a quote uh, recently by this writer, Sally Lloyd-Jones. She says, faith is resting in who God is and what he has done. If I'm not mistaken, I think most of us, including myself, we think of faith as like some kind of another work. Like I've got to conjure up. I've got to conjure up some faith. I don't have enough faith. I've got to conjure up. I've got to sort of bring faith up inside myself and make it rise up within me so I can be accepted by God. And that's not what faith is at all. What faith is, is just resting in the work that's been done for you in Jesus Christ. Faith is is resting in who God is and what he has done. And I think whenever you, um, when you and I follow Christ, you're going to enter times like this. You're going to enter times where there's the green pastures and the still waters. You're going to enter times that appear like real material blessing. You're going to enter times like that in your walk with Christ. But um, I think whenever you get, we get beyond this part of the passage, we see something else happen in verse 4. We'll get to that in a moment. But look at verse 3. He also says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Back in Psalm 1, we talked about, it said, blessed or happy is the one who finds his delight in God. And we talked about how many people look for happiness and look for true life by walking off into sin. And we talked about how um, true life is only found in following Jesus, but many try to find life in, in, in sin. And so here it says, following Jesus, we, we, we learn from this passage that following Jesus means that he restores life. He restores someone's soul. So the very thing that we're looking for, which is life and happiness, as you and I walk off into sin, God says he restores our life, he restores our soul when we find our life in him and only in him. He restores our soul. It also says he leads you down paths of righteousness. Here's something interesting about this path. It says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Catch that phrase, his namesake. What does that mean? What he's saying is that he makes his name known when he leads you in paths of righteousness. So it's not, it's not just um, do right things or behave yourself so that, um, so that you can look good, so people can go, wow, look at the life that person's living. Look how awesome they are. But it's really to point to him. So when, when Jesus changes you, he changes you, not so people look at you. He wants you to look at him. And so um, we see in this passage that um, how you and I live either will tarnish the name of God or bring glory to the name of God. That whatever we do is going to bring glory or dishonor to his name. This is why people say things like, the world says things like, you know, why should we believe what those Christians say they believe? Because their lives don't reflect it. And as Christians, we want to sit back and be like, well, you know, you shouldn't hold us to that kind of... Well, really, they're doing right by holding us to that kind of standard because um, whatever we do, our behavior is going to be a reflection of, of his name. And so in some sense, they're right. No one's perfect, of course, but in some sense, they're right to hold us to that, to that kind of standard. I want you to look at, uh, at verse 4. Look down at verse 4. This is where I might start breaking out into a rap in a moment. So um, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So sometimes following Jesus brings green pastures, it brings still waters, but sometimes it brings dark valleys. There are times where it brings the shadow of death, it brings fear, it brings evil upon you. When Jesus, following Jesus does not mean no suffering. Often it means suffering to follow him. And so what he's saying, I love this phrase. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil. Why? He says, because you are with me. He doesn't say, I will fear no evil because the evil stopped. He doesn't say, I will fear no evil because... There is none. He says, for you are with me. This is where David finds his comfort, is just the presence of God being with him in the midst of being surrounded by evil. And this reminded me of, um, this passage reminded me of my dog, actually. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But I had this little uh, border collie. How many of you guys know my little Zoe dog? Little black and white border collie. And she's kind of skitzy. Like she's a little, she's a little neurotic sometimes. Um, she likes to growl at little children. She really does. It's kind of scary. But she won't bite. She just likes to growl. But so my little Zoe dog, she um, is about 10 or 11 years old now. And anytime there is a thunderstorm, do your dogs freak out during thunderstorms? Anybody? So my dog will wake me up in the thunderstorm. I'll be there sleeping in the bed, and I'll hear this, like, scratching at the bed. Like, she wants to wake me up. I'm like, what am I supposed to do to help you out? And she does this weird little thing where she'll, she'll act like she wants to go outside. It's almost like thunder makes her, like, literally shake and makes her so anxiety-ridden that she, like, has to go to the bathroom. And it's like she wants to, she's, like, asking me, like, let me outside. And yet she, ha- she realized when she goes outside, she's going to, like, face her fears of the thunder and lightning. So she'll, like kind of run out and like run back in, like, like she has to go. She has, I'm like, what are you doing? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Stop it. 
And so my dog will do this little schizophrenic thing during a thunderstorm. And what's interesting to me is whenever the thunder starts um, crackling outside, no matter where we're at in the house, even if we're, it's daytime, she will just come over and get close to us. Now, has there ever been a time when um, I have, like, flipped a switch and made the thunder stop? Has there ever been a time where I have, you know, where, where she has said, like, can you do that thing you do where the thunder goes away? That's never happened. Not once. And yet she always comes over to one of us during a storm. Why does she, she comes over for comfort? Because for some reason, I don't know what it is, for some reason there's just something about being close to her masters during a storm that she likes. She feels comforted by that. And this is the same way I think that God um, allows us to be himself to be with us in the midst of whatever we're going through. So the comfort is not found in just the end of the evil or just it stopping or it not existing. The comfort is found in you being with him, him being with you. And there's great comfort in that, in that place. And so one quote you can write down is this. When you and I suffer, our greatest comfort comes from knowing who walks with us. Knowing who walks with us is where you find your comfort in those kinds of situations. I also love the expression where he says, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How many of you guys, when you're growing up, you're like, yeah, mom, dad's rod, that really is comforting, you know? That's a comforting situation. Well, the, 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 the shepherd had a, a stick or a staff, and this was meant to guide or to discipline the sheep when they're a little out of line. I don't think he's like, you know, whacking the side of the sheep, but I think he's guiding the sheep um, as he is trying to discipline them and keep them on the path. The staff was used to guide or discipline these sheep. We also see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says that God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those that he loves. This reminds me of a story when I was in high school. I had this really good friend named Chad. And we were good friends like freshman, sophomore year. But as can often happen, middle of high school, um, his life started taking a different turn. And he began to, you know, party, get drunk, get into some drugs and stuff like that. And we just sort of parted ways for a little while. And one night when he's in the middle of all that, for some reason, he and I were having this conversation, and he said that the weekend prior, he had come home from a club, he was drunk, he came home, he said he crawled to the top of his steps in his house, and he collapsed on the kitchen floor, and he said he knew his mom and dad were awake when he got home. He said his mom, he felt her just step over him, and she went to bed. Next morning, she didn't say a word. He waited for a week. She never said a word to him. And as he sat there with me and my friends, he sat there and shared this with us, and he actually broke down weeping because he was saying to us, I don't know if my parents care that I'm doing these things. He said, I, I don't know that they even care that I'm being so destructive. And I was sitting there thinking, so confused, like, but Chad, you're like, you're rebelling right now. Like, I thought you didn't want them to care about that. And you can just see that he's, here's a guy who knows. Even in the midst of rebellion, he knows that he needs discipline. He knows that he needs 
someone to care enough to come alongside him and guide him and discipline him as, as needed. And I'll never forget that story because it was so powerful that I think of many of you that as, as some of you are in the throes of rebellion right now, I know that deep down you know that your parents' discipline of you is really an act of love. Now, you don't say that to them. I know you don't say that to them. Thank you, Mommy and Daddy, for, you know, you don't, you don't act that way. But deep down, you know it is. And this is what it means when it says that his rod and his staff, they comfort him. They bring comfort to him as God guides him and even disciplines him as needed. Look at verse 5 and 6. There's a changing of gears here in verse 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So now he's not talking about sheep and shepherds. He's now talking about tables and enemies. And the picture has now changed. He's actually talking about a, a, a host of a party and a guest. He's totally changed images now. And so the two pictures being used in this passage are God as a shepherd, but also like God hosting a meal. And God setting the table for David in the presence of his enemies because his enemies are surrounding him. But David feels so protected by God that he can sit down and have a meal and have fellowship with God. And when you think about the home, I'm having a G group leadership meeting at my house today. We love having people into our home. But when, when, when people come into your home, very few people get to come into your house, right? It's usually people that, are, that you know pretty well. And I want you to watch this. God himself wants fellowship with us. Where he refers to it like he's a, a host and we're his guest. And he wants that kind of fellowship with us. And he, he extends to us that kind of fellowship And he gives us this image of of him as the host and we as the guest, and we get invited in to that kind of fellowship with him. I want to move quickly over to another passage that um, I want to talk about just briefly. It's actually in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. And here's the story behind this passage. In Luke chapter 10, um, Jesus sends out 72 people to preach and to do miracles. And they're actually given power to do miracles by Jesus. And they come back to Jesus, and they say this quote. They say, even the demons have to listen. So they're kind of getting a big head. Like, even the demons have to listen to us, Jesus. And um, when, I, when I read that passage, um, I look at verse, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 20. It says, here's Jesus' response. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I'm going to tie this back into Psalms in a moment. But here's how this times in. What he's saying is that before you get consumed with what I've done through you, don't forget what I've done for you. And so sometimes you and I are tempted to get more excited about what God is doing through us than what he's done for us. This is especially true of people that are in full-time ministry, like, God, do some things through me, and we forget, no, wait, what has God done for you? And Psalm 23 is a reflection for for David on what God has done for him. On what God has done for him. He is his shepherd. He is like a guest at a party being hosted by God. 
And it's these powerful images. And so in this psalm, David is doing this. He's relishing what God has done for him. And I want the, the words, the Lord is my shepherd, to sink in for you this morning. Let those words sink in for you this morning. That God himself would step out of heaven and put himself in flesh and want to have a relationship, want to have fellowship with you. It's amazing truth. And so hopefully that this morning is just a a small reflection on what this uh, passage is really getting at. Let's go ahead and close there. And you guys go into your discussion for your last few questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss your last few.